Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 242. We'll continue in the book of 2 Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 12 through 15 and follow with some thoughts about talking the talk and walking the walk. The people are now divided into two kingdoms, Judah in the south under the heir of Shlomo Rechavam and Israel in the north where Yeravam ben Nevat rules. Don't expect our chronicler to give the north any positive coverage, but he doesn't hold back when the south goes off the rails. And although Rechavam consolidates his power, quote, he abandoned the teaching of Adonai and all Israel with him. And before you can say Av Shalom's your uncle, the Egyptians are on the move. And in Rechavam's fifth year on the throne, quote, Shishak, king of Egypt, went up against Jerusalem, for they had betrayed Adonai, with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen, and the troops who came with him from Egypt were beyond numbering, Libyans, Sukites, and Nubians. It does not look good for Judah, but Shemaiah the prophet appears before the king and admonishes Rechavam, quote, You on your part have abandoned me, and I as well have abandoned you into the hand of Shishak. World of pain. And despite the acts of contrition and humility that follow, Shemaiah informs Rechavam that though the punishment will still land, it won't land as hard which is some consolation, I suppose. Rechavam remains king, Judah remains an independent kingdom, but Shishak loots Jerusalem, taking, quote, the treasures of the house of Adonai and the treasures of the house of the king. This is the moment that provides fodder for the plot of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Rechavam was 41 when he became king and ruled for 17 years, and the chronicler sums up his reign as follows, quote, He did evil because he did not ready his heart to seek Adonai. And the acts of Rechavam, early and late, are they not written in the words of Shemaiah the prophet and Edo the seer in tracing lineage? And there was constant war between Rechavam and Yeravam. Rechavam dies and he is succeeded by Aviyah his son. Chapter 3 recaps the succession and the civil war that engulfs Judah and Israel and presents King Aviyah's blistering diatribe against Yeravam. Quote, Hear me, Yeravam, and all Israel. Do you not know that Adonai, God of Israel, has given kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons in a covenant of salt? He goes on to decry the northerners as worthless men who, quote, were hard against Rechavam when Rechavam was but a lad and soft-hearted and could not stand strong against them, and their chutzpah for daring to raise an army against God's anointed dynasty and building a temple filled with golden calves, alienating the priestly class and Levites, etc. He concludes with Judah's bona fides, quote, look, at our head is God and his priests, and the sounding trumpets to sound out against you. O men of Israel, do not battle with Adonai, God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. Well, if words were arrows, the war would have ended right there and then. But Israel's armies have a different plan, an ambush, which they pull off perfectly, catching the Judahites out. Only the Judahites calling out to God and the added pleas from the Kohanim moves God to intervene and save them. The tide of the battle turns. Quote, And Aviyah pursued Yeravam and captured towns from him, Bethel and its hamlets, and Yeshana and its hamlets, and Ephraim and its hamlets. And Yeravam could not muster power again in the days of Aviyah, and Adonai struck him and he died. 
And so the chronicler sums up Abiyah's reign, quote, and the rest of the acts of Abiyah and his ways are written in the record of the prophet Ido, and Abiyah lay with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa, his son, was king in his stead. In his days, the land was quiet for ten years. Chapter 14 continues with the theme of quiet, with the new king Asa doing, quote, what was good and right in the eyes of Adonai, his God, and he removed the foreign altars and the high places and shattered the cultic pillars and hacked down the cultic poles. And he told Judah to seek Adonai, God of their fathers, and to do the teaching and the commands. And he removed the high places and the incense stands from all the towns of Judah, and the kingdom before him was quiet. Asa's religious accomplishments are matched by political and strategic success, securing the border and repelling the attack of Zerah the Cushite, who, quote, sallied forth with a force of a million and three hundred chariots, and he came to Marishah. Well, one need not worry about the outcome, quote, and Adonai routed the Cushites before Asa and before Judah, and the Cushites fled. <laughs> Asa is killing it, literally and figuratively, and chapter 15 begins with Azariahu the prophet making it clear why Asa is doing so well. Quote, Adonai is with you when you are with him, and if you seek him, he will be there for you, but if you abandon him, he will abandon you. So Asa took this to heart, and quote, he summoned strength and took away all the disgusting things from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, and from the towns that he had captured from the hill country of Ephraim, and he restored the altar of Adonai that was in front of the great hall of Adonai. He also summoned the people to Jerusalem, all the Judahites and Benjaminites, and the refugees from the north to Neroffer. And while they were all together, quote, they entered into a covenant to seek Adonai, God of Israel, with all their heart and with all their being. And whoever did not seek Adonai, God of Israel, would be put to death, from the least to the greatest, from man to woman. And they vowed to Adonai in a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with ram's horns. Asa was not done with his religious reforms. He removes the queen mother Ma'acha from her role because, quote, she had made a horror for Asherah. And Asa cut down her horror and pulverized it and burned it in the Kidron Wadi. Nonetheless, the chronicler tells us that, quote, the high places did not disappear from Israel, yet the heart of Asa was whole all his days. How do you know when a person says sorry that they actually mean it? How do you know when repentance is sincere? I've talked about saris in previous episodes, specifically episode 14, in the context of Yosef and his brothers, and whether anyone apologized to anyone for their antics. In episode 65, which focused on Shaul's apology to Shmuel in light of Jack Marshall's taxonomy of apologies. The best apology, Marshall argues, is, quote, an apology motivated by the realization that one's past conduct was unjust, unfair, and wrong, constituting an unequivocal admission of wrongdoing, as well as regret, remorse, and contrition as part of a sincere effort to make amends and seek forgiveness. This last line, I think, is pivotal. And it cannot be tested until much, much later, when a similar circumstance arises, and only then can we know if amends were truly made. It's a real toss-up whether the turn away from wrongdoing is true. This situation, this dilemma, is captured in the Hebrew word for repentance, tshuva, whose root is shin vav vet, and serves also as the root for the verb shuv, 
the infinitive of which means to return. You really have to find yourself in the same situation that got you in trouble to begin with, and now we'll see whether you made amends, whether your sorry is more than the mere breath you spent saying it. It's not for nothing that two of the steps of recovery involve amend-making, with step eight calling for people in recovery to look back on their actions and identify where they are at fault and what can be done moving forward, and the ninth step, where they begin to make direct amends whenever possible, like spending more time with one's children to make up for missed soccer games or graduations and study sessions, or keeping your promises and showing up to events instead of flaking on commitments, or repaying any outstanding financial debts to loved ones. As hard as amend-making is for an individual to the people in their life, it's exponentially more complicated when an individual representing an organization or government tries to make amends to a group wronged by that organization or government. So, say Pope Francis comes to Canada to apologize for the behavior of, of Christians, quote-unquote, toward the indigenous people of Turtle Island. Well, let's let the Pope speak for himself. He said, quote, Today I am here in this land that, along with its ancient memories, preserves the scars of still open wounds. I am here because the first step of my penitential pilgrimage among you is that of again asking forgiveness, of telling you once more that I am deeply sorry. Sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppressed the indigenous peoples. I am sorry. I ask forgiveness in particular for the ways in which many members of the church and of religious communities cooperated, not least through their indifference in projects of cultural destruction and forced assimilation promoted by the governments of that time, which culminated in the system of residential schools. Although Christian charity was not absent and there were many outstanding instances of devotion and care for children, the overall effects of the policies linked to the residential schools were catastrophic. What our Christian faith tells us is that this was a disastrous error, incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is painful to think of how the firm soil of values, language, and culture that made up the authentic identity of your peoples was eroded and that you have continued to pay the price of this. In the face of this deplorable evil, the church kneels before God and implores his forgiveness for the sins of her children. I myself wish to reaffirm this with shame and unambiguously. I humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against the indigenous peoples. Okay, okay, Dan, okay. The Pope can speak on behalf of the church, but the people from whom he is seeking forgiveness do not speak with one voice. And although Chief Wilton Littlechild presented the Pope with a headdress on Treaty 6 territory in central Alberta, many indigenous leaders criticized this move because you don't gift something so honorable to someone who comes to apologize for something so horrible. Some were not surprised that Little Child was the public face for this presentation, as Little Child was a former Conservative Party of Canada Member of Parliament, and although all protocols were followed, it's not surprising that the gift came from a Tory to the representative of arguably the longest-standing Conservative institution on the planet. Others pointed out that Pope Francis could have repudiated the Church's doctrine of discovery, that emerged from a series of papal bulls, the first of which came in 1493 from Pope Alexander VI, giving Christian colonizers permission to claim any land they discovered for their kings and potentates that wasn't already claimed by other Christians. In short, this doctrine enshrined white supremacy and colonialism, and despite the apology, it still remains church doctrine. The Pope's apology, one could argue, is an important first step 
on a long journey. But come on, how long is this journey going to take? Haven't we already started this journey? Aren't we decades into truth and reconciliation? It's not like no one knew what was happening in residential schools and one day Gord Downey writes a sad song about Cheney Wenjack and suddenly the veil drops from everyone's eyes. Cheney Wenjack froze to death fleeing from a residential school in northern Ontario on October 23, 1966. His story was first told in Maclean's on February 1, 1967. As the great PR flack Bobby Fleckman said, Money talks and bullshit walks. So I guess it's time for the church to talk in the only way they know how. But not only that, there are archives that still need to be opened and artifacts that still need to be returned. And most importantly, there are still individuals alive today who perpetrated the genocide that need to be called to account. Only then will the Pope's words have meaning, I think. Only then will we know his turn was true. But what do I know? Which brings me to the public show of penance in this episode's portion, which is very much in the deuteronomistic mode of religious fervor and anti-idolatry. If you want a quick refresher about the deuteronomist and his obsessions, you can check out episode 88. We have a similar dynamic here, a very public forum where individuals and collectives speak out about their loyalty to God and desire to follow God's path. There are near offerings offered in the hundreds, trumpet and shofar blasts, we will be faithful to God. We will keep the commandments. Okay, Derry. They're okay. Okay, Derry. They're okay. But where is the action to back it up besides the massive barbecue? In the next verse, chapter 15, verse 16, King Asa steps up and removes the queen mother from her position. Why? Maacha was a worshiper of Asherah. And so, after packing her off to who knows where, Asa, quote, cuts down her horror and pulverized it and burned it in the Kidron Wadi. Taking action is tough under any circumstances. Taking action to support an apology is hard, but a little easier when it's directed outward at other people. Hey, we're all going to do this thing, this difficult thing that proves that we mean business, right? So good, let's get started. But we're going to start with you. And once we've made sure that you've come correct, then we'll look into what I'm doing. But as we see with Asa, the cutting down and pulverizing, etc., wasn't just left to the public sphere. It also cut close to home. Asa repudiates his own mother. It doesn't get more personal and more sincere than that. And though these religious reforms didn't cleanse the land of all the idolatry, you know, which is the long-standing bugaboo of the Tanakh, especially the Deuteronomist, quote, yet the heart of Asa was whole all his days. Because backing your words with action is hard, but even the smallest step in that direction can cover a lot of ground. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning five this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 243, when we continue in Second Chronicles with chapters 16 through 19.